Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Michael read the passage for us this morning. But I actually thought of another passage um, whenever I read this, read this story. I think first, or, uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, is one of the saddest and also most gloriously hopeful passages in all of the Bible. Those of you who don't know 11 through 13, let me read it to you. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's, it's sad, the passage is sad, because it rec- records the rejection of the, of the Jewish nation, the rejection of, of their Messiah whenever he came to them, just as God had, had promised. And we've been watching that happen in the Gospel of, of Mark as Jesus is presented the majority are rejecting. And this passage is also gloriously hopeful because it describes how God opens the door for us to become His children, not because of nationality, not because of our wills, but because of a spiritual birth. It's always been God's plan. Salvation is of the Jews, but not for the Jews exclusively. Salvation is for, is for the, whole, the whole world. And following the teaching about where evil comes from and what, what, what causes true defilement, this, this next scene that, that we're uh, going to see where, where Jesus encounters this Syrophoenician woman up in, up in Tyre, it may not seem connected to the previous passage about the washings and the, the listings of defilements, but, but it is, it's, it's absolutely connected. It's, in fact, it's, it's, it's the next, it's the next stage. It's, it's the next point unfolded. God is after inward purity. And that only comes from a transformed heart. That's what what he was teaching his disciples and what he was teaching the crowd and and that's why he was rebuking the religious leaders. But anyone who responds in humble, repentant faith can be transformed. And that's what we're going to see in in this passage. Externals don't, don't offer that. And defilement comes from within. And Jesus declares that all of the Old Testament ceremonies were, were realized in, in His coming because His coming provides the, the basis for, for, the, for the new birth. That's why in the New Testament we don't have any rituals. That's why it's, it's, it's nice to look back and, and, and read about the Passover and see about Pentecost and the feast of this and the, and the offering of that. But there, there's none of that in the, in the New Testament because we need none. We, we have Christ. We have the substance. The, the shadow has, has passed away. The New Testament always talks about internals, not, not externals. It always talks about Christ. What is the work that, that God calls us to do? It's to believe. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and when it talks about, about what defiles us, it says to put off and put on. Put off anger and wrath and malice. All these are inward things. And we are to put on faithfulness and love and, and forgiveness. And all of that's possible because of the, the new heart. All that flows from the, from the new heart, which is, which is given to us by, by Christ. That's what the New Testament emphasizes. And the Old Testament emphasizes the shadow, pointing us to the, the New Testament. 
There's one other thing that the New Testament emphasizes. And that's how God's salvation was intended to go to the whole world. What is the one verse that even unbelievers know? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's not new. But that's been forgotten by the religious leaders. Been forgotten by the Jews of, of Jesus' day. Listen to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is, the, is the, the beginning passage of that. It's echoed throughout Genesis. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. There will be a land. And I will make you a great nation and there will be a people. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And listen. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be, will be blessed. The promise given to Abraham. And that blessing is going to come through the nation. Because that nation is going to bring forth the promised seed. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? The book of Galatians tells us. And while the, the Old Testament is focused on pointing to his coming and on the Jewish nation, God's plan has always been blessing for the entire world. The Great Commission is not a new concept. It's right there in the, in, the book of, in the book of Genesis. All nations will be blessed by coming in faith like Abraham, trusting in the promised seed that Abraham would produce the Lord Jesus Christ, and Israel would be the nation that God would use to bring us that message and the Messiah. Jesus was a Jew. That's what the Old Testament says and what the New Testament reaffirms. But it's something that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had forgotten, and it's not something that Jesus wants his disciples to forget. Not only did they believe salvation was obtained by the externals, they thought salvation was theirs because they were Jews. They were children of Abraham by physical birth. They also thought that the Gentiles were excluded when, in fact, God saved them as his people in order so that they would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The hope of the Jews is the hope of the world, and you're proof of that this morning. And how does this idea of clean and unclean prepare us for the message? Well, Jesus goes beyond Galilee to the Gentiles. He enters an unclean Gentile region. He has contact with an unclean Gentile woman, and he casts out an unclean spirit. And, and with this story, in verses 24 through 30 of Mark 7, he is modeling the Great Commission for the disciples. Remember the twelve that he's sending out? And they're preaching around the Galilee. They're leaving Galilee and they're going to, to the ends of the earth. And he also in this story reminds us that the way of salvation is not meant for the Jews only, but anyone, including the Gentiles, who come by, by humble faith. The title, Bread That Cannot Be Contained, because of the, the story that's, that's here. But I want you to pay attention to this theme as, as we walk through the passage. Jesus is the Savior that cannot be hidden, and the bread of salvation cannot be contained. It flows and goes everywhere. Let's look at the outline. Abundant grace falls from the Master's table. It falls to all who come to Him in humble faith. Abundant grace falls to all with, with humble faith. And there are three parts. There's this unexpected encounter 
in verses 24 through through 26, there's an unconventional reply where Jesus has this interaction with this with this Gentile woman, and then there is an undeniable outcome. A declaration is made at the end of this story. There's there's only just a, a few verses. But let's look at how Mark walks us through this. Look, if you would, at Mark 24, verse 24 through 26. It says, From there, that's from the previous story, from Galilee, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and, and Sidon, and he entered a house... And wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. And here comes the description of the woman. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast out the unclean spirit or the demon out of her, out of her, her daughter. Mark talks about a distant location, this covert site where Jesus is at. There's this improper intrusion where this woman comes in. And then there's this defiled description of this woman. It says in verse 24, he rose, he rose and went to this region. And it was the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is also called Phoenicia. And we're going to see in the next scene that we won't read this morning, he, he stays in a Gentile region in Decapolis. Now, Tyre and Sidon were, were two of the main Gentile cities. And, and, and if you were looking at a, a map of Israel, the Sea of Galilee is here. The Mediterranean Sea is over here. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea. They're about 20 miles apart, and they're about 50 miles from, from Galilee, from, from Capernaum. They were part of the boundaries of the northernmost territory of the tribe of Asher, but that had long been, been lost. The Jewish roots had long been, been lost. It's probably best known, Tyre is probably best known, because of King David and Hiram, the king of Tyre, who gives the cedars of Lebanon. This is Lebanon, where Jesus goes. They said it's about 50 miles from Galilee, and the, the towns are about 20 miles apart. And, and the point is that Jesus doesn't go just for a short, short little jaunt from Capernaum to Bethesda. He, he, he goes for a long distance. If he travels the normal route, he's going to go outside of Galilee. He's going to go over on the seacoast. And then he's going to come back through Decapolis. He's going to come back down. He's going to make a big, he's going to make a big circle. You might think of like the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. The whole trip would have taken weeks, if, if not months, whenever you add this, this next scene in. And, and he leaves Galilee, Mark says. He goes into a Gentile region. And he does it in order to train the, the disciples. The idea is that the, the unbelief is fixed in Galilee, and now he turns to the uttermost parts. He turns and he takes the, the apostles so they'll understand that the Gentiles are there as, as well. I, I, I think it's significant. Not only is it a Gentile region, but it's a, but it's a long way off. There are Gentiles obviously everywhere. I mean, we saw Jesus go right across the Sea of Galilee and come into a demoniac. Meet a demoniac who was a, a Gentile who went into the capitalist. But he takes this long journey. And there's another time that Jesus does that. When he, when he gives significant teaching. When he goes up to Caesarea Philippi. In Matthew 16. You know the passage. Who do men say that I am in the midst of all this pagan worship? And the disciples answer. And then he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, you're right, Peter, you're blessed. The Father in heaven revealed that to you. And upon this rock, upon this, 
this foundational boulder of the gospel that I am the Christ, I'm the Son of God, I will build my church. That's how you come into the, into the kingdom. And Jesus has been doing that ever since. It's massive, significant teaching. And he takes them away to a specific place for an object lesson. In Mark 7, I think Jesus does that again. And he takes the disciples far away into this Gentile region, and he lodges in a covert location. Look at verse 24. He entered a house. We're not told what kind of house or whose house. But we can tell from the rest of the story, it's a Jewish house. And he wanted no one to know it. And I love this part, but he could not be hidden. We're not told whose house it is. It's likely one of his followers that had come down to Galilee earlier. Listen to Mark 3. It's a few chapters earlier. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea, and from the Jordan, and from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard all that he was doing and came to him. So as Jesus was ministering in Galilee, people came from all over to see what the hustle was about, the bustle was about, and a group came from Tyre and Sidon, and no doubt Jesus is in one of their their homes, and he wants to be hidden. But he can't be hidden. We're not told why. Does he want to escape the crowd? Does he want to arrest? I mean, we don't know. But the point is, he doesn't stay that way for long. There's this improper in intrusion. Look at verse 25. He could not be hidden. Here's an explanation of what Mark means by that. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, heard that he was in town, and she came. She came in the house, and she fell at his feet, hearing of him, a woman immediately, the minute that she hears that he's in town. That's a small town probably. I mean, you know how small Lynchburg is. I mean, you can't go to Sam's or Walmart without bumping into somebody. Sometimes it's somebody that you don't want to bump into, right? I mean, think of how small the towns were then. Jesus comes to town. The disciples are with him. He goes to a home. It's not like a big hotel. And he finds, this woman finds out, and immediately she goes, and immediately she comes in, and she falls at his feet. Now, this is highly irregular. You don't do this. I mean, think about even today. Let's say somebody who's famous, somebody that you really, really want to get close to, you really, really want to see, goes and visits your neighbor's house. He may be somebody that you even know. I mean, you're not going to go invite yourself for dinner. Hey, I heard Mark Hager's over at the house. I really want to get to know Mark Hager. Can I come in? I mean, you're not just going to go do that. And this is there's no evidence in here that this woman even knows the, the house that Jesus is in. She immediately finds he's there. She comes in the house, and Jesus is probably reclining at, like, the ankle-high table. He's to the side, and the woman falls, and she immediately begins pleading with him. How's that for an introduction? He just doesn't know the woman. And the phrase means that she's urgent, it's intense, she keeps pleading with him over and over. And the parallel in Matthew says Jesus didn't answer, so she just keeps pleading, and she keeps pleading. It'd be highly improper. It would have been an intrusion, it would have been even rude. But even more shocking is how Mark describes the woman. Look at verse 26. They're just drilling down into this narrative how Mark just unfolds. All these details are important. The woman was a Greek. 
a Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him, there's the pleading, to cast out the demon in her daughter. Here's this defiled description. Now look at all the descriptive markers that Mark uses to make sure that we get the point. This woman is a Gentile or a Greek. Matthew says that she's a Canaanite woman. How's that? Tyre was a Canaanite city, and the Canaanites were cursed by God, right? I mean, the Canaanites aren't supposed to be there. They're not supposed to be in this region. They're supposed to have been wiped out by God's people. And she's evidence that that didn't happen. The Canaanites are left. These are occupiers in, in the land of, of Israel. She's evidence of a cursed race, occupiers of a Jewish land. But even worse, she's part of the current occupiers. Look at what it says. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician, a Roman by birth, a Syrian, a Phoenicia. That wasn't bad enough. The city of Tyre is where Jezebel lived. It's where Baal worship originated. Commentator says, as a Canaanite, she was corrupted by Baal worship, and as someone under Rome's influence, she was corrupted doubly by the Roman gods. This is about as un-Jewish as you can get, isn't it? A Greek, a Roman, a Canaanite, and she's a woman to boot. And her daughter is oppressed by an unclean spirit. Now, I want you to notice in verse 25, the woman is called an unclean spirit. And then the rest of the chapter, it's called a demon, including in verse 30. Why do you think it's called an unclean spirit? Because Mark wants to connect it to the previous story. And Mark's point is this woman is defiled by her heritage and her daughter is defiled by a demon. And there's no need for hand washing with her. You need to take a bath and burn your clothes, if, if, as far as a Jew is concerned, a religious Jew. And for Jesus not to just throw her out immediately would have been a discredit to, to him forever. But the Lord's already shown where defilement comes from. It doesn't come from the fact that she is a Syrian. It doesn't come from the fact that she's a Greek. It doesn't come by the fact that she's a Canaanite. It doesn't come by the fact that that she was all of those things by birth. And now he's going to show, while defilement doesn't come internally, he's going to show how you can become clean internally, how internal salvation is obtained. In verses 27 and 28, there's this unconventional reply. Now, when you first read this, you don't have to answer out loud, but were you offended? By what happens, or did you go, well, that's really interesting? And that's not how I would have expected Jesus to respond to this woman. Kind, caring, this is the Savior, the Savior of the world, the Savior for this this woman. In verses 27 and 28, you've got this divine prerogative, and then there's this penitent response of of the woman. It's fascinating interaction. Look at verse 27. But Jesus said, when he finally speaks... Matthew says that that he didn't say anything, so she just keeps pleading. And when he finally speaks, Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Do you think that the the woman before 
And she comes pleading for this little girl. Do you think with her background as a Canaanite and a Roman that she tried the Canaanite idols and the Roman gods before she came here? I think so. It's the reason that she's that she's here, number one, and I think it's the reason that she's that she's pleading. You may have tried all kinds of things before you came here this morning, but I want to tell you that the one I speak of, he can do what no one else can do. She knows it too. She's persistent. She keeps on. She's penitent. Penitent. She says, have mercy on me in Matthew. She's respectful. She calls him Lord. And yet Jesus responds to her, let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. Wow. It's not what I would have expected Jesus to say. It almost sounds callous. It almost sounds harsh. Why, why didn't he reach down and, and, and take, her by the, take her by the chin and, and lift her up and, and, and say, come unto me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will, I will give you rest. Sounds calloused and harsh. It's, it, 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 it arrests us so much so that there's been several attempts to explain away the harshness of Christ's response or the seeming harshness. One, one said that the word for dog here is for little dog. It's, it's a small dog. So what Jesus means is he's calling her puppy. It's like a puppy. You know, everybody loves puppies. So that's what Jesus is calling her. She's a cute, cuddly little puppy. I saw another commentator who said, this is my favorite. Jesus said this in protest to the unfair economic farming practices of the Tyrian capitalists. Tyre was dominated, dominated the agricultural market because they were over on the seacoast. And so Jesus was saying that she was part of the Tyrian dogs taking literal bread from the Galilean children's mouth by their oppression. Folks, that's called... Eisegesis. Eisegesis reads in, exegesis draws out. And you can read anything you want to into the Bible if you don't approach the Bible by putting your hand over your mouth and letting God speak from His. The problem with both of those interpretations is the meaning's very plain and it really doesn't even take the, take the edge off. Calling her a puppy doesn't change the point. The bread is placed on the cha- uh, table for the children, and, and you might be a puppy or a little dog or whatever, but you're not one of them. That's what Jesus is saying, and it's very plain. She, she asked for her little girl, and so Jesus calls her little girl a little dog. And be careful talking about somebody's kids or children. But Jesus doesn't worry about that, and you shouldn't read too much into the story. Dogs, big or little, in biblical times weren't domesticated. They're associated with pigs in Matthew 7, 6. They were associated with heretics in 2 Peter 2, 22 and Revelation 22. They were not man's best friend, and this woman is not God's best friend yet. Look at the statement again and see if you can see the hope in it that the woman clings to. Jesus said to her in verse 27, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dog. The statement is actually full of hope. 
And she knows it. This was a Jewish home, and she was a Gentile. And the gospel had to come to the Jews first. And it says that they'll be filled first. But the woman says, you're right, but then there's a second, right? There's a second. That's fine, they can have it first, but but there's a number two. I'm happy to be number two. I'm happy to be number 1,002. And with that one word, door of hope, just, just comes flying open. Jesus doesn't say you can't be filled or you won't be filled. He says that the children will first be filled. And his point is that Israel is not the end of God's salvation. Israel is actually the means of God's salvation. And Jesus came unto his own. And he came to them first. And his own received him not. And Jesus came to Israel to bring salvation so that Israel could bring salvation to the Gentiles. That was the whole purpose for Israel. And the Gentiles were never excluded from God's mercy. But there is a divine prerogative. God chose Abraham. And God chose the Jewish people to be his vehicle, to be his means, to carry his message and to carry his Messiah but the Gentiles were not excluded from God's mercy. There was a priority to the Jews first. Do you know, or did you know, that you're the means to bring salvation to other people? Did you know that? Did you know that you're not better because you heard it first, but you're the means so that the second and the third and the fourth and the the million and four... Could hear? Did you know that God chose to save you so you could bear the gospel and make a second? And yes, you get the blessing of being filled first. But what do you do whenever you have the blessing of being filled first? You say, wow, that was such a good meal. I wish everybody else could have the same grace that I have. Is, is that what's in your heart as a saved person? No. You give it away. And it doesn't take many. While the nation rejected, there were enough who believed. There are 12 disciples. That's what the disciples are struggling with. Why is there not all of Galilee flocking to you? There was 12, and then there was 120 followers, and there were 500 at the resurrection in Galilee, and then there were 3,000 Jews on the day of, of Pentecost. And then the gospel went to the ends of the earth. Peter was a Jew, Paul was a Jew, Jesus was a Jew, and you're probably not a Jew this morning. Isn't it amazing what one word can do first, be filled first? Listen, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest... But, there's the one word, God being rich in mercy because of His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. One word, but. This is not a story of Jesus demeaning the woman and then she answers so impressively that He finally relents and gives her some bread. 
This is a story to teach the disciples that the bread, yes, was placed on the Jewish table, but it was always to be carved up from the Jewish table and be given to everyone. And the way that they would receive it would be through humble, repentant faith. And this woman is a picture of how you receive that. That's what Jesus is saying. And she gets it. Look at verse 27. She gets it. Verse 28, I should say. She answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. What? I mean, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm a little dog and not one of the children. Yes, Lord, I have no right to the bread. Yes, Lord, I am unclean. That's what she's saying. She's agreeing with him. She's agreeing with God. She didn't feign offense and say, How dare you, you Jewish bigot. I'm going to start an Internet boycott and get you barred from ever coming here again. She didn't justify herself and say, everyone is equal in the eyes of God, even though they are. She didn't deflect and say, what right do you Jews have to salvation? We Gentiles are, are, are just as good and you, the Jews are just as wicked. She doesn't say any of that. She doesn't see herself worthy of the bread. She doesn't see herself worthy of the bread, and that's why she answers, yes, Lord which is exactly the problem that the religious leaders of the Jews were having and why they wouldn't receive him and why you won't receive salvation today when Jesus is freely offered to you because you don't really think that you need him because you think that you're good. They knew that they were children of Abraham and they thought that they deserved the bread because of that. They were offended whenever John the Baptist said, Repent. And if you're offended when God calls you out or a preacher clearly identifies your sin, it's a sure sign that you have a heart problem, maybe a salvation problem. You think you're too good for the Savior. And the Savior saves sinners. <laughs> Savior doesn't save good people. And if you respond, yes, Lord, call me all that and then some. Yes, Lord, I deserve hell. Yes, Lord, I did it, and more, yet, then you're close to the kingdom. You remember Spurgeon's quote? It's one of my favorites. Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. You are far worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely at some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have a moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth. That's the heart of somebody who's received the mercy of Christ. Spurgeon said, you and your sins must separate or you and God will never come together. No one may keep one sin. They must all be given up. They must be brought out like Canaanite kings from the cave and hanged up in the sun. She says, yes, Lord. I'm happy to take that moniker and then some. And she goes on. Verse 28, yes, Lord. Yet even little dogs under the table eat from the, the children's crumbs. 
the Jews have first rights, but not exclusive rights. They're offered Christ first, but then he's offered to us, right? That's what she's saying. She sees a salvation so great that it cannot be contained on the table. It spills over on the floor. But in order to get crumbs that fall on the floor, where do you have to be? You have to be on your face, which is exactly where this woman is at. She's bowed down before the Master. And she says, I know I'm a sinner and what I deserve is hell and whatever I would get is grace. But since you're offering grace to others, can I just, can I just have a crumb? I don't deserve the loaf. If you'd be so kind to give me some that falls from the table, I'd like to eat it. (laughs) And you know what God does whenever you approach Him like that? He doesn't give you a crumb. He doesn't give you a loaf. He gives you the baker. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? You get the one who makes the bread, and you can have the bread anytime you want it. One said, come to God as a beggar and he'll send you away as a king. Come to God as a king and he'll send you away as a beggar. It's true. This woman is modeling how you come to Christ. Christ is offered to all. But those that receive him come in humble, penitent faith, knowing they deserve nothing because that's exactly what grace is. This whole story ends with a with an undeniable outcome. She answered, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the the children's bread. And he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of, of your daughter. And when she'd come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. There's a declared faith. She just declares that she has faith. There's this distant exorcism that happens. Jesus doesn't even leave the house. And the demon leaves the woman, leaves the little girl. And then there's documented proof of that. She goes to the house and she finds the situation exactly as as Jesus declares. Jesus seeing her heart and says, for this saying, literally because of this word, because of your response. Matthew says, she says, have mercy on me. She calls him son of David. He's the Lord. She knows exactly who he is. She confesses all of that. She expresses repentance and humble faith. She says, even the overflow from your table is enough for me and to heal my daughter. All of those words, all of her responses imply an expression of faith. And Jesus says, that's right. Exactly what it looks like. Exactly what you have. She's saying, if Elijah could perform a miracle for a Gentile woman, how much more could the Son of God do for me? 
And that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 30. And when she had come to her house, so she leaves Jesus, saved woman. She comes to her house and she found the demon gone and her daughter cast or lying on the bed. How powerful is Jesus? Even from a distance, he healed her daughter. Even without physical contact, he wills it and the demon <laughs> the demon flees. And as she's bowed at his feet beneath the table, some of the crumbs fall all the way across town in another home. Some of you think God is in heaven and He's up there. How can He help me here? I can't see Jesus. I can't touch Jesus. In fact, the people that have supposed to have been His hands and His feet and His mouth have not been very kind to me. They, they have not been a very good illustration. They, they have been very much like the, the religious leaders that told me a lot of externals and rebuked me and condemned me and... You know, otherwise, can, can he really help me? The Bible says he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And you know what he's doing? Is he seated at the right hand of the Father? He's interceding on your behalf. He is a propitiation. He is a, he is a, a constant testimony to the Father that the wrath that you deserve and that I deserve has been, has been completely satisfied. God is so powerful that his... Crumbs can fall any time His Word is proclaimed. And He not only sees you now, He can touch you right here, right now, with salvation. But you'll come just like this woman. And you'll know it when He does. Verse 30, she comes and she finds the demon gone and the, and the little girl lying on the bed. Now, there's a play on words here. It says, her daughter is found cast on the bed. The bread that was not cast to dogs, to unrepentant unbelievers, is now cast to this woman in the healing of her daughter. And now on the other side of salvation, she's one of the children. And when Jesus enters your life, everything changes. And most importantly, you're standing before God changes. You're no longer an enemy of God that needs to be reconciled. You're His child and He's your father. You're no longer a stranger alienated from the household of God. You're a joint heir with Christ the Son. You're no longer a hell-bound sinner. You're a heaven-secured saint who is blameless before the Father. And Christians who receive that live for the One who gave them that bread and died to set them free. Isn't that your desire? I hope it is. You should bow your heads just for a moment. Are you living for the one who died for you? Or have you gotten too busy and forgotten that you were once a little dog under the table and now he's made you his child? Maybe you're here this morning and you've forgotten that, that you were saved first. And you need to be reminded that, that just because you were saved first doesn't make you better than anybody who's not. 
but you were saved first so that you could be the means for someone else's salvation. You're here this morning and, and you're, you're offended. You're holding on to some rights. You're easily offended by the truth or you're nurturing some sin. You'll never come to Christ until you can say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm all of those things. And then some. If you'll do that, you'll not only get the bread, you'll get the baker. Father, we come before You this morning and we thank You that You have been so kind and gracious to us. What an amazing passage of Scripture. And oh, Father, I pray this morning that You would remind me every single day of the rest of my life that I was this little dog that was under Your table. I was a spiritual Mephibosheth and I couldn't even pull myself under the table. I couldn't even get to the table. But You reached down to me and You gave me so great a salvation. Keep that reminder in my heart every moment of every day so that I would live a life that would be pleasing to You. And so, Father, I would not be lifted up in pride that thinking because I am first that I don't need to reach to the second. Help us to do that, Lord. I pray, Father, for someone who's here this morning that may be nursing some sin. I pray that they would bring it out in the light and slay it like a Canaanite king. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first, even while we were sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing, Jesus, thank you. There is a prayer room here. It's not just for you if you don't know the Lord. If you, you don't, you want to pray about something, you can go. It's for anyone. God's words have been preached. The response to God's Word is not just for people that are lost. It's for all believers. God's spoken this morning, hasn't He? You respond. You respond in singing or prayer or however the Lord leads. Let's sing. By Your perfect sacrifice I've been brought near. Your enemy You've made Your friend. out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end. Your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you, the Father's wrath completely satisfied. Washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. That's the only thing that you can say, isn't it? You thank the Lord for all that, that He's done. Don't forget when you leave, um, you can sign, the, sign up in the back. Um, it's reaching those that are in that very condition. Father, we love you and we praise you. And we just ask you to dismiss us now with your blessing. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. 
Amen and amen.